Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about things that we're you know, interested in, digital media production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to be kicking off a series uh, that really talks about project management. So you're going to be, they're going to have uh, a whole, we have a group of real experts in our, in our midst. Uh, they're going to be talking about project management and the tools and the processes that you need to understand uh, as you kind of scale up some of your projects. So uh, stay tuned for that in the second hour. If you've got questions about that around the tools or or project management in general, go ahead and throw those into Makana for the second hour. And let's go ahead and jump into the questions for the first hour. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Matthias Utila in uh, Helsinki, Finland. And uh, Matthias says, "What uh, as a small production company, having a Zoom Pro license does not give us all the benefits of using Zoom ISO. Mainly, the meeting resolution limits to 720 instead of 1080. Any ideas on how to get 1080 without purchasing 10 licenses? Go ahead, Jason. Absolutely. Um, the great news is that you don't need 10 licenses. You just need to demonstrate a need for uh, higher resolution. So reach out to your Zoom rep and give them a sense of, of how you intend to use it. And you should be pretty, pretty locked in for a better resolution. They can fix that pretty fast. Without paying for the business licenses, then and that is a minimum of ten. Um, the you it is a harder road. So just know that you know it's not going to be just you can just say I need 1080. You really have to make a good business case for why why you need 1080. Um, so that just keep that in mind. Uh, the ten licenses get it to you pretty automatically. Um, I've heard of you know people being able to whittle folks down to five licenses, you know, et cetera. But that really depends on who you're talking to. Um, hopefully, Zoom is going to fix this. Um, you know, right now, if you have a Zoom Pro license, all you have to do is say, I need 720. And, and they just don't give it to everyone automatically. Um, but they will give it to you automatically if you ask. Um, you know, so you don't get it out of the gate, but you get it out of, you know, you get it uh, if you ask for it. I think, personally, I think that the, the Zoom needs to push this forward faster. I think part of when we say, oh, I don't want to be in another Zoom call. I don't want to do my event over Zoom. I don't want to have more meetings over Zoom. I think sub subconsciously people are reacting to that lower resolution, and I think it would really benefit um, our industry and people and and meetings in general if we started moving to at least 720 for everyone, and then being able to request 1080. Hopefully, Zoom will uh, think about that harder. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas comes up next. What is the current state of the art with WordPress relating to themes, plugins, and using AI for automated content creation and updating? Go ahead, John. Tons of plugin tools out there. I, I would say at least 90% of those tools are nothing more than an API into, into OpenAI's 3.5 version of the model. And so I just use OpenAI directly. My guess is that it, that WordPress is going to integrate AI direct link right into the code. But I haven't seen anything magical out there. I use the Avada theme, which is one of the best themes on the marketplace. Um, and so I just do it the old-fashioned way. I've built hundreds of WordPress sites in the last 10 years. Go ahead, Brett. Um, I agree with uh, John. And if it's a set-it-and-forget-it website, um, there are plenty of um, plugins and themes that'll allow you to generate content. Um, but if it's for a business or an organization, um, SEO is a big concern and you don't want your content to be flagged 
as AI and, and you don't want Google to ignore it because it's AI. Um, so the best thing to do, like John said, is just use uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT directly and put your content in. But if it's set it and forget it, um, just make sure that you're using a, a reputable theme from a reputable theme developer or plugin developer, because um, some of them really are a cash grab um, when when people um, don't realize that, you know, you can get OpenAI or OpenAI Pro for 20 bucks and not have to pay on top of that just to have content generated. Next question. Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. Up next, has anyone tried an aftermarket self-driving add-on like the Kama 3X with OpenPilot? And he's got a link to it. Go ahead, John. Well, this is a great question. I have not, I have not tried it, but this company, Kama, is, was uh, founded by George Hotz. George Hotz is a superstar in the coding and, and hacking community, and they're in San Diego, and... They just had their convention, which is called Comic Con, and it's in San Diego. Bill, isn't that funny? <laughs> where they no where conflict they, there. Where they announced the three X, which just <laughs> came out. But George is an amazing guy. I watch him. He does a six seven hour YouTube videos where he codes the whole thing. He's an amazing guy, and he says his stuff is one step behind Tesla. Uh, but for twelve hundred dollars, it looks like a decent product. How does it control the car? It plugs into the OBD port. But it looks like it's, it says lane centering and so on and so forth. Like it, they can they can they control, can control steering, steering through the ODBB, o, 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 whatever that port's called. They can uh, control steering through that port. Could, I'm afraid that there's oh, a little bit in my scary. head of like what could possibly go wrong. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it. Uh, I looked at it. It works with a CAN bus, uh, and I have a car that would qualify. It works with over 250 different cars that have basically the uh, you know that you'll see in most. Uh, safety packages like in my Kia Nero e, uh, plug-in hybrid that has, if it has digital lane keeping, which means it can control the steering, and if it has automatic braking and uh, adaptive cruise control where it can control the, the accelerator and it has ties into the camera system that's on the front, the vision system. But this apparently has its own, uh, its own set of cameras, it's about 1200 bucks, or you can license it for $113 a month, it looks like. And it has uh, three cameras, has an infrared camera that watches you inside the car. And it has two cameras that face forward. It looks like it's built on a cell phone platform of some sort. Uh, but uh, it has on storage, three cameras, a Snapdragon processor. <clears throat> it looks an awful lot like an Android phone. It then has a harness of uh, wires that tie into the uh, CAN bus, uh, into the CAN bus through the OBD port, uh, it would be fairly scary for me. I, you know, Tesla has enough problems with running into things in their full full auto driving, and all the, I looked at some of the videos on this, and the only videos it showed was on highway type driving. It it didn't show any you know city type driving, you know, with stop signs and stop well, lights that, and pedestrians, <laughs> things like that that kind of get in your way. You know, you know I, I do feel like we would have a lot more. Uh, a lot more really great solutions if we just focus on the highway because the highway is the worst. I mean, the 405 or the 101 or whatever, you know, the highway, the, the city driving, I kind of, I don't need the auto driving to work. I mean, I'll, I'll drive that part. I just want to, when I get into the highway, I want to say, okay, you take over. <laughs> I'm going to go take a nap. I, I haven't done that yet, but I'm just, that's my dream is like, I'm going to go to, I'm going to get on the five to go to LA. I did that yesterday, last week. And I would have loved to, um, go to sleep on the five from uh, from about the grapevine to 
to where we get to Livermore. Like like that section is like four hours of just oof. Well, anyway. Apparently, it does not disable the the warning system that's at least built into my Kia that makes you touch the steering wheel. Yeah, every exactly. thirty seconds. No, I'm saying so I'm not saying sure I would, I would use this one. It's that, I'm just saying that's the dream. Not that I would actually do it. I don't think I could sleep thinking that the car was driving. I, I know some people have proven that they can, but I I couldn't. I don't think I could do that right anytime soon. Go ahead, Bill. I don't know why, but I saw the ad harness for 150 bucks, and I thought, what? You have to update your seatbelt rig? What? <laughs> that just didn't seem safe at all. And maybe that's just the way you word things, but that's scary. Next question. Next question comes to us from C.J. Koval in Downington, Pennsylvania. What color profile should I use when sending a Mac to an ATEM? I've been through every color profile and system prefs and run display calibrator, but no luck. Image is washed out. White point is okay. Go ahead, Jason. Mm, okay. I think this doesn't actually have to do with the color profile. In fact, has to do with your handshake. So... Um, I've got a few monitors plugged in here, and I'm, I'm selecting the um, the Blackmagic HDMI, and macOS is automatically choosing the color profile, BMD HDMI, that, that was loaded automatically. So I, I think something may be wrong with HDMI. Um, also, go into Preferences, so Command, Comma from your, from your ATEM app, and um, be sure that you've got... None, not generic, but none selected there. And then your, your colors should look just fine. Yeah, another thing to think about is, is how the way I've done it when I really needed the colors to be very close to correct is the way you want to think about, um, I have a spider, it's a spider elite. And the way it works is that I have a computer here and then it's going to go out to the monitor. But what I can do is put the switcher in between it, right? So I can put the switcher in between that monitor. Now you're double correcting, so you got to make sure that the monitor is correct. Um, but the... What you can do is run through it, put the spider here, run back to the computer, and what it's going to do is it's going to correct for what it sees on the way through. Um, so because the spider doesn't know what was between the computer and the monitor, it just knows that that's there. Now you're correcting for the the switcher and the monitor when you do this, but it'll create a profile that will at least look good on the monitor that you have, and then you have to look at the stream and see if it if that lines up. The big problem you have with monitors in general is that you know it's it's never the, quite the same color. That's why we used to call it NTSC, never the same color. Um, so so you just have to um, kind of think through that double correction process, but that might get you a little closer too. Next question. Matthias Utia in Helsinki, Finland. We need a real-time transcription in live stream. What ways panelists can recommend to execute this and any recommended services? Alternately, if an event is held in Zoom, is there easier build-in tools for doing this? Go, Bill. Well, so I've been doing um, translation, not real-time, but I'm still... I never found anything that gets anywhere close to what I need in terms of a realistic translation that ha that could happen in real time. And the reason I say that is that the best of them have 99 point something accuracy, but that means that you're going to get a word wrong or something every hundred words. And while they've gotten incredibly better, it used to be the big problem of there, there, and there, how you spell it, and the fact that it couldn't figure out which word is word. It does a lot of those kind of heuristic things really well now, all the translations. But they still have trouble. So if you're purely... I, I watch sometimes like news captioning that is being done in real time. And the fact that they go wrong so often, I think is part because people speak in odd cadences and they diverge from the original thought and that we don't speak cleanly. So when you're trying to transcribe it, it's really helpful to have a human brain behind that. So I don't trust anything 
to do translation if it needs to be right other than an actual person. And that unfortunately means no real time. That's just how I look at it. Yeah, the tools have gotten pretty good. 99% is pretty optimistic. It's usually even with a human, probably at 96%. Um, and then we find that the, a lot of the tools up in the past have been between 92 and 96%. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of times, you you know, th- this is still something that um, does make a huge difference for people, even if it's not 100%. Um, and people will, the, the main thing is you always have to prepare people because people will... Um, complain about it you know and and they especially complain about it if you change this if you change the language because it'll never get the language perfectly right it's much closer to 80 percent of the what everyone will agree on is the right translation of that thing but if you're looking for for real-time translation zoom of course builds it in so you can it'll just pop up bing or the the um, teams and meet will also do it internally but if you really want to put it up there as a separate element. So really as true captions, you're really looking at AI media slash EEG. So these, they build the tools that were, are going to give you, they're going to properly insert um, uh, the um, the text data into the bank information inside of a video signal. And then that's going to be able to pass it through. So line 21 inside of there is going to pass that data through. That's going to show up in an encoder. Uh, that's how TV makes those captions work. Um, and so uh, those are the ones that those, there's hardware to do that. There's also some software that can bring that on as a, as a, a sidecar. Um, the, pro, the product you're looking for is Lexi. Uh, Lexi is their product that will do this automatically. And it, it's used in a lot of events that I work on. Um, of course, a stenographer is always going to be in my my opinion better as, as bill said so having a stenographer there that is feeding that into you know they're going to be using a variety of different systems um that that might eclipses pro cap so and so forth and then they'll pass that out now if you're looking for a separate screen you may be looking for something like stream text stream text is the software is a web cloud that will connect an eclipse that a stenographer might be using or lexi into many, many different outputs. It can send it to YouTube, it can send it to something else, it can also send it to what we call cart, which is a full screen version of those things. But so those are the things, stream text, um, but but specifically AI media is probably, a, we, we've had them on the show, we'll probably bring them back on to do Q&A. Um, but th- they're the ones that are kind of the industry leader um, in that area. Um, and uh, they're used for a lot of events and a lot of broadcasts. Um, but all, I think most stuff you see on broadcast is a person doing it. It's not an automatic version of that. Um, it's, you know, there's a, some legal requirements for those things right now. Next question. Sorry. Next one comes See, from I know, I know. I'm spending so much time being a panelist, uh, you know, at different times. And then the thing, I just finished my question. I'm, I'm expecting someone else to talk. Anyway, next question. I know it's a problem. Uh, Eric Hertz in Hanford, Hartford, Connecticut. Sorry about that. Would you recommend NDI Bridge as a replacement for SRT for remote contribution? No. <laughs> I would stick with SRT. <laughs> so, there, okay. That's, I love the definitive my, answer. <laughs> you know, I, I, we, I worked on projects where we're using an NDI as a, as a contribution method from the edge to the core, and, and I have not found it to be particularly stable. So there's just a lot of tweaking and it never came out. And, and SRT is, is a pretty stable platform to do that in. Um, so I would recommend sticking with an SRT contribution. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, discussed the concept of global artificial scarcity. Who does this? Apple, luxury products, and he's got a link there to explore. Uh, go ahead, John. Yeah, artificial scarcity is the idea that a firm or organization doesn't produce the maximum number of units, and they do that in order to decrease the supply so that prices go up. The problem with this idea is that it doesn't stand up to the laws of supply and demand, especially in competitive markets. Um, 
what you're talking about, Paul, is there are some luxury goods that as the demand or as the price increases, the demand also increases. That's called a Veblen good. Apple does not produce Veblen goods. That's things like um, those purses you see for $60,000 or a watch for $150,000. Those are goods that as the price increases, they become more desirable. Apple exists in what's called a monopolistically competitive market, which if you want to do some YouTube videos on that. Basically, what it means is Apple's incentivized to produce, produce the most that they can at the lowest price. And over time, they'll always produce what they can at their lowest price. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what Johnson. Um, <laughs> basically, I agree with most of that. You do find it mainly in luxury products because uh, scarcity implies, you know, hand craftsmanship, you know, a lot of higher level of value or craftsmanship and scarcity imply, you know, this is done with a lot of collectibles. You know, they will limit uh, uh, people, things who make collectibles do a limited run, you know, uh, serographs or uh, copies of paintings, uh, you know, they'll run a numbered series to make them more valuable. But any type of luxury item or collectible, the whole idea is the scarcity makes their value greater. And NFTs was the same deal. Mm -hmm. Good, Bill. I've worked a little bit on the other end of this, which is oversupply. And it's scary sometimes. When I was working in that, I had a client at one point called Bargainland that took manufacturer overruns and put them on. They had thousands of eBay auctions running all the time. And everything on there started at one cent. And they bid up from there. And whatever it eventually went for, it went for. But the point was, we used to get pallets and pallets into the warehouse of manufacturer overruns where they thought the market was 300,000 units using their best thing, and they sold 8,000. And so you have this massive overrun of stuff that has to go somewhere. And over and over again, I saw that happen with products that, even from large manufacturers who just bet wrong on how popular that product was going to be. So uh, artificial scarcity is on one end of it, and I understand what you're talking about. But on the other end is this horrible artificial oversupply by just bad planning and not being able to do it uh, to meet the market just in time or something like that and having to massively ramp up on a product that doesn't find a market. Yeah, and the other side of that is a lot of times people do just in time where they just build things as they're being ordered to make to make sure that they don't have that overrun. The problem is, is that you end up with COVID and suddenly nothing can move around and they can't sell anything. <laughs> so, so that's a, so that not having a little bit in the back end uh, becomes more problematic. Go Supply ahead, chain is not easy. Yeah, it is. Right. Exactly. Good, John. I, I want to know who wrote this article, Paul, because it's posted up on WordPress and I thought this was one of your domains that you have. And I I want to know who Scott, the author, is. Let me know on Discord. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, there's two brands that I can think of that are a perfect example. Is Hermes? There's there was quite a phenomenon with the Birkin bag, twenty thousand dollar bag. Didn't even it was not even a matter of money. They are looking for specific types of customers. You can't just walk in and say, I want to buy this bag. So you have to look a certain way, talk a certain way. Um, Ferrari too, they want a certain type of customer. Even if you have a money for a Ferrari, they're not just going to take your money and give you a car. So that those are two perfect examples of companies that just they want to maintain a specific brand, a specific type of clientele. Yeah, and the real challenge with doing artificial scarcity is that it, it builds up um, either demand, what we call demand destruction, which means that it, you make it so expensive that people just don't want it anymore. They, they find some other solution. So a good example is, the, you know, the, the, our oil is, oil is an artificial, um, we have an artificial cap on oil, and that's, that's created by OPEC. 
And so OPEC creates an artificial scarcity. Um, they, they, they are not producing as much as they could. Uh, if they did, the price would drop and they wouldn't make any money on those, on those barrels of oil. So they put it out at a certain rate that makes the most sense, the most profit for them. But when they do that, of course, they create, you know, basically if they do it, if the gas prices get too high, then people buy more electric cars, you know, or they just, or they change their behavior and say, well, I don't want to drive as much. I don't want to do those road trips. I don't want to do these other things. And so their behavior changes and, and, behavior changes are super hard to change again. So if, if someone goes away from your product, it becomes really hard. Another good example is diamonds. Diamonds are worth about glass. You know, there, there's so many diamonds that are out there. They're worth a little bit more than glass. Um, and De Beers keeps a very tight control over the diamond supply. There's a whole, they, they cemented a whole beach in Namibia because of their diamonds were on the sand, in the sand. Um, and so they, uh, um, so they, they make sure that that supply stays short, but they've created a high, basically, you know, they, you know, J uh, Bezos, uh, Jeff Bezos is, was the best to say your margin, this margin here between what diamonds are actually worth and what diamonds uh, what they're selling diamonds for. Your margin is my opportunity, <laughs> you know? And so, and so when you have competitive markets there, um, what happens now is we have artificial diamonds that are basically going to replace natural diamonds. And the artificial diamonds are identical to the, to the natural diamonds, except they're not connected to blood trade, blood, you know, um, they're not blood diamonds. Um, and they are actually becoming more pure. And that artificial rise, I mean, that artificial control and pushing that price up basically created that market over 30 years. I mean, I remember reading the first article about man-made diamonds in like the 80s in Wired Magazine, and now they're, they're becoming normal. Like, you know, I'm seeing ads for them on TikTok. <laughs> like, you know, so, so the, um, and so, and that, that will slowly replace, you know, uh, natural diamonds because they don't have any of the cultural baggage that the natural diamonds do and they look and they're exactly the same. So that's the kind of thing that was created by, you know, con a, a artificial constraint on a market. Um, and so, and it's also why you want to try to keep people away from monopolies because they don't, because if they have monopolies, they can do this all the time. A good example is uh, LVMH. <laughs> so next question. David Brady in New York City says, using my MacBook Air M2 in a docked mode while at the office, are there any Apple-certified outboard fingerprint readers on the market? Go ahead, Alex. Historically, a lot of these uh, fingerprint readers have not been very secure in my experience. I haven't looked recently, uh, but on a Mac, uh, what I would suggest doing, it's a rather expensive solution, but Apple's own Magic Trackpad keyboard has a Touch ID sensor on it. I'm using one right now and it works really, really great. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, if you're referring to a if you're referring to a fingerprint reader, then yeah, you can get them, and they're a terrible idea. If you are actually looking to integrate with a Touch ID system, which ties into the secure enclave system, which is not the same as an optical fingerprint reader, then yeah, you need to get a keyboard, you need to get an Apple Watch, you need to get something that that Apple has manufactured, which which actually ties directly in. And I'm unaware of a way to thwart that. Go ahead, Brett. I do recall that Jason Snell on MacBreak Weekly um, bolted a spare uh, Magic Keyboard under his desk, almost like a panic button, um, and that you know it did the trick. But then I think he even three D printed um, something to like make a little case after he deconstructed the keyboard uh, to just have the um, fingerprint reader. So I would look. Um, it, it might be on YouTube. 
um, or or just uh, look back in MacBreak weekly episodes. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Alex, your camera seems to be a bit more exposed than usual. Did you change your settings? Uh, ninja eyes there, paying attention to my to my camera. So I have a new camera. Uh, this is actually, it looks pretty similar to the old camera. Uh, I'm using a ZV-E10. I'm trying to experiment with less expensive versions of how to make this work. Um, so uh, so this is a ZV-E10. Instead of being, uh, I think, $1,800, which is what the FX30 is, which I still have, um, it is about $700. And so, uh, you know, it cuts the price down by more than half. Uh, I'm, you know, for when, when we think about, a lot of times when I'm doing this, I'm trying to figure out kits, you know, how to, how to make a kit work and what will we do to make it work and so on and so forth. And so my attempt was, is to, is to get the, um, is to get a cheaper solution that we can use for our kits that still looks good. So this is the same sensor size um, and I'm using actually the same 1.4 lens so it works pretty well. I do have a 1.8 lens coming that I'm going to try that's much smaller and much less expensive again. I'm trying to get down, my goal has been to get as close to $1,000 for this kit as, you know, for this camera kit as possible and still have that Super 35 um, look. So um, the problem that I'm having right now is that I cannot reliably pair to the camera. So um, I can do it if I walk all the way around and I look at the QR code and I, and I type it back in and I walk back over. Then, it, then when I close my app, it goes away and it's not um, connecting reliably through Wi-Fi. So I'm, it's probably a setting on the camera. <laughs> like I just, need, I just need to keep on looking at it. Mean, I'd figure that out. So I haven't quite figured it out yet. So when I get it set early in the morning, it's sometimes a little, a little off. Interestingly enough, on my monitors, it looks it looks like it's a high, but it doesn't look like it's peaking. But it may look like that in Zoom. So, anyway, so I'm I'm going to probably uh, I'm still working on that that little handshake, but it's a good little camera. Um, it's not a camera that I'd want to do any production with. Um, the uh, micro HDMI frightens me a little bit. It's a very but it's a very very small camera, um, and so I'm I'm kind of I find that to be kind of interesting. I could possibly use it as an overhead or something like that, but. You know, I'm trying to figure out also, you know, the idea is, is that my FX30 was getting kind of tied up by being a webcam. And I was like, it'd be good to use that and be able to shoot with it somewhere other than that because we use it for the event coverage. And I got to get, I got to start working on the LUTs um, that as they, as they tie into YouTube. And so I needed that camera and, and taking it on and off every morning is not something I'm super excited about. So anyway, that's the long story about what happened with the camera. Um, but it is a new camera and I'm overall, I'm pretty happy with it. And still the, the, the focus isn't quite as good as the, um, it's a little bit slower than the, than the FX30 and it feels more, uh, abrupt. It's not as smooth as the FX30, but it, overall it's a pretty good camera. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Chrome keeps popping up with this message on my Mac M1 running Sonoma. Make Chrome faster. Memory saver frees up memory from inactive tabs so it can be used by active tabs and other apps. Where is this coming from and is it a good or a bad idea? Uh, go ahead, Mark. Well, I think oh, anytime you use a browser, especially Chrome, it uses up a lot of resources on the computer. So I think Chrome has finally come up with a solution by by allowing the resources to go away from tabs you're not using. What I typically do is just don't open that many tabs because A, it gets hard to read the tabs and you get a little confused as to what tab is where, um, but that just kind of helps keep the resources easy. So I, I would have thought Chrome would have just built it in, but. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, Safari has been a lot more stable in that respect with memory management, but I've been testing this feature because I have to use a Windows 
10 PC at work and it has actually made a significant impact. So if you're the kind of person like me that has about 50 or 60 tabs open at any time in Chrome, then yes, it is a good idea to turn it on. You will see a reduction in memory used on your computer. So just try it out. Okay, Courtney. Yeah, it depends on uh, whether it, it's a good or a bad idea. It depends on your method of working. If you're constantly switching back and forth between tabs, uh, it may slow you down a little bit because what it does is it to free up resources. It just keeps the current version of a, a page that a tab is assigned to. So it does not refresh that page continuously. And if you've got a busy page that has lots of ads or a news page that is constantly updating with video and animated ads and, you know, everything else, all that stuff is staying up to date uh, on the uh, not currently the forward facing tab. So uh, what it does is it just turns off the updates for all the tabs that are not being used or at least the not the top four tabs or something that are not being used. So it's not doing as much bandwidth in the background by updating all those off-screen tabs. Uh, and then when you select that tab, it will then do a refresh. So when you select that tab, it'll take a little bit longer for that page to update and refresh. It won't be instantaneous. So if that's your way of working and constantly going back and forth between a lot of tabs uh, frequently, then it, it uh, may slow you down. If you don't go back and forth, uh, it'll save a lot of refor uh, resources and let you run more programs other than the browser. I go, Jason. My immediate thought was, how many tabs do you have open, Paul? And you, you clearly need to buy a Mac Pro for at least $13,000 to be sure that you can support your Chrome habit. I shut my Chrome, my, I shut my, my browser all the time. Like I save the things that I want to save and I shut it all the time to make sure that I, that I don't start building up tabs. So I never have probably more than five or six tabs open at any given time. Uh, quick reminder that, of course, this is a good time to ask questions. You can ask questions uh, in Mokana for general questions. You can ask them uh, in the uh, right now in Mokana for the first hour, general questions. And then, of course, if you have questions about project management, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour and make sure to vote on those questions so that we know what order you'd like us to ask them. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. I installed a Tiffin variable ND filter onto my main camera. However, when I put the dust lens on, the outer ring moves ever so slightly, which is quite annoying. Other than tapping it, any other solutions? Uh, go ahead, Jason. This is the built-in hazard of a, of a variable ND filter. What you can do is get fixed ND filters and put them behind the lens instead of in front of them. But other than that, no, this is just one of those issues that, that's kind of built into a variable ND. Go ahead, Courtney. Two words for you, Alexander. Grape jelly. I find that grape jelly is the universal slow down everything uh, <laughs> substance. And if you just smear a little grape jelly between the two rotating polarizing filters, not on the filter itself, but just on the ring, it will goo it up just enough so that when you t touch it, See, you're I'm not sure going to bump started, it. This started, with, this started because the, Courtney was using his lens right after lunch. And he, after he, a peanut it was butter discovery, jelly it was an sandwich. accidental discovery just, of like, oh, no, I got grape jelly on it. Oh, wait, it works better. I'm serious. I actually discovered this because I used to have printers that the feed rollers would dry out after a number of years. And I found that... But the grape you know, jelly never dries out. 
That's grape jelly. Haven't you ever uh, found a piece of grape jelly behind underneath a shelf or something no, that's been sitting no, there for a year? No, and never. It's still sticky. <laughs> no, no. Go ahead, Jason. Grape jelly. I'm just saying. It's oh. the universal. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you a commercial version of grape jelly. There is a temporary version of Loctite. And if you take the tiniest amount of temporary Loctite and put it on the inside of the thread, you might be able to immobilize it just enough, but you're running the risk. Of, of hurting it. Yeah, good, Bill. Avery has little tiny dots. That's what I used to use when I had a problem with something that needed to be set someplace. I'd set it and I'd put three at the third points of, around the lens and they can be peeled off later, but it'll give you at least more stability in terms of the movement of the filter. And I don't use variable filters. <laughs> so I just have a set of them at different heights and I replace them at it. The polarization can sometimes change the nature of people's faces, their, their skin. And so I, as a result, I, I don't use anything that has polarization if I'm shooting people. So, um, so anyway, so I, so I don't use the variable filters. I just use regular ND filters. I have a little kit of them that I can put them on um, in, in that tin from, I think it's 0.5 to 3 stops i believe or maybe no i think one i have one that's up to nine stops um that that's there but that's that's how i kind of approach that next question samuel nordvik in norway regarding live transcriptions can youtube receive captions for a live stream in real time without burning it into the video feed if so how's it done yeah, you can absolutely do that. Um, so what you have to do is you, you have to do 608, 708 captioning. Um, again, this is inserting that that into the video signal. So uh, in, in your encoder, there's a couple things that have to happen to have that happen, to be able to do that. Your encoder, whatever that encoder is, has to be able to read line 21 or the bank data. Um, and you have to have uh, not lost it by running it through something like a switcher, so like a black magic switcher uses that, that bank data to talk to the cameras. That's how they figured out how to talk to cameras. Um, so you have to be very careful of, it has to come right at the very end. Now, typically we use an EEG 492. Um, a 492 is going to insert that data, insert the captioning data into the into that right before it goes to the encoder. The encoder then is going to receive that video signal with that captioning um, in it. And then uh, YouTube knows how to read that. So if it's, if it's encoded, if your encoder is set up to encode captioning, it will send that stream to YouTube and, and YouTube will read it. And so will Facebook and um, kind of Twitter. Well, back when they, Twitter did, <laughs> Twitter, Twitter would put it like four lines on for one side. Well, not, didn't work very well. But, um, but, uh, but Facebook, I mean, YouTube can definitely read that 608, 708 data. Um, and you just need to make sure that you're inserting it in the right place right at the very end. I think that things like Wirecast and can, can see it, but I've never done it with a software encoder. I've always done it with hardware encoders. So something like the Elemental Links, which we use here, um, the Elemental Encoders, the, the you know the the, the O two threes and three three O thirty ones and six hundred and seven hundred series, well eight hundred series, will all all read them. Um, so mostly my experience has been mostly hardware encoders being able to read those and then and then pass them into the into YouTube or almost any other uh, platform. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. What does the panel recommend for sturdy keyboard and musical equipment stands? I know the German Jaspers brand is a solid choice, but there aren't any U.S. dealers. Good, Alex. I always go to Koenig & Meyer, or as mo many people know them as K&M stands. They're a German company. Uh, they are 
really solid steel, really great components, and I've never had any issues. They are more expensive than a lot of the, the cheaper off-brand knockoffs, and they, uh, they do have U.S. dealers. I'm sure you can get them at B&H or uh, Sweetwater as well. Next question. Eric Hertz in Hanford, Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, says you mentioned using an AWS Elemental link to send the program to remote servers. Do you ever have a use case to send the program as SRT to a remote location? And if so, what do you use to send the SRT signal? There's a lot of things that'll do SRT pass, you know, that, that will send those. So, um, you know, OBS will do, do that. Um, and many other things will encode into SRT, uh, to be able to send those signals over. So I, I also things like uh, your, your, um, I think most of the hardware switchers, um, not hardware switchers, but like uh, the the TriCaster and other things will do SRT. Um, I still use, I have to admit, I still use the link. I take it to AWS and then pass it SRT back <laughs> to something else. Now, there's a long delay there, um, so there's a, there's a lot more latency to do it that way. Um, but uh, I don't, and, and I admit that I don't use SRT a ton. Um, you know, most of the time we're, we're doing, we're passing things around internally, um, you know, and we send it to the cloud um, to move those. But you can do SRT as well. I think from the live view, you can use using live view central, uh, you can have your live view go into the cloud and then convert it to SRT. So, the, you know, SRT inside of the elemental cloud is a pretty, um, pretty known subject. So it's just a matter of using um, Media Connect and Media Live to, to basically package those up as SRTs to send them out. Um, LR, I mean, um, Larix is another one that you can send directly from a phone. So Larix will, will allow you to encode from a phone directly into SRT. Um, and also, um, I believe Stream Voodoo will do it as well. Um, so it'll uh, encode those to SRT. So those are a couple SRT solutions. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas notes TV of the year costs $1,300 on Amazon for a 55-inch class OLED S90C. I think this is from Samsung. Too too good to pass up and open boxes around a grand. Uh, Go ahead, Brett. Uh, Looks like a beautiful screen um, and it has nice 4K upscaling um, and the price is is nice for, for an OLED. I would say my only real complaint is Sam, Samsung's latest TVs have ads in the operating system, which drive me crazy. Um, so if that uh, is a deal breaker for you. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Um, I'd be very careful about an open box with an OLED because of burn-in. Uh, you don't know where it's been or how long it's been there and what's been on displayed on it. If it's a display model, it's been sitting on the shelf with a logo down at the bottom. It could have that logo permanently burned in on it. Um, so I'd be very careful about an open box. Samsung makes very good OLEDs. I think they come from LG, the panels do. But um, I'd go the uh, mini LED QLED, which is what I went for when I was last shopping for TVs from Samsung um, with, uh, you know, adaptive brightness on the backlight with the mini LEDs. Gives you a much brighter image than the OLED does. So if you're going to be putting this uh, TV in a room that gets a lot of daylight, has a lot of windows in it, you might find the OLED, which has beautiful blacks in a dark room, uh, may not have enough oomph for you to see things uh, clearly in a brightly lit room. So take that into consideration. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Well, I just wanted to say, I, I've noticed that I am spending less and less 
time in my living room in front of the bigger TV. Now, everybody's habits will be different. If I was still in the family uh, area of my life, maybe all of us gathering together and watching stuff in the evening would be a perfect use for that. But more and more, my wife and I tend to watch things at dinner time together. We enjoy that time together. But then we split off and I end up watching on a phone or an iPad or something else. And that behavior pattern, I, I think, is going to continue because it's more convenient. In fact, just last night, the dog came up and gave me that look that says, I want to go lay in the sun a little bit um, or lay outside on the patio. So I was able to take the content that I was watching, put it on pause for just a second, walk out with him, move to a different location, restart it up. And it didn't interrupt my viewing enjoyment of the show I was watching, but it was more flexible. You can't really do that with a big TV in the living room. So I'm just finding more flexibility. I'm so I'm spending more time with smaller personal screens, less time with the big screen in the living room. So I'm probably going to invest less in that as I go forward. That's just how I find it. On the other end, I don't like buying a, a, a TV at 55 inches. If, if I, I need to be minimum 75 if I'm going to use it to watch content. Um, so 75 inches is kind of my, my, you know, we use 55 inches as kind of like utilitarian monitors to put in places, but but I wouldn't use it, you know, like we use them for multi-views and stuff like that and to see stuff, but um, I wouldn't put a 55 inch in a living room, you know, in, in from, from my perspective. So, um, yeah, so that's what I would think of there. I also wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't buy anything that didn't say uh, Dolby Vision on it. Like, I don't think this one has, I didn't, I looked at the spec, I don't see Dolby Vision showing up. Samsung doesn't like paying for the licensing. Um, the problem is, is that Dolby really pays attention to the entire pipeline. They're managing an entire pipeline from from cradle to grave. And, and that's the, um, that's what, you know, HDR 10 plus, which is probably what Samsung, Samsung, HDR 10 plus is Samsung saying, I don't want to pay the licensing for Dolby. Um, but I think that that, uh, supporting a pipeline that is actually being curated is important, um, you know, for getting good quality out. So I wouldn't buy a monitor that didn't say Dolby, Dolby Vision, at least say Dolby Vision on it. It may not be the perfect Dolby Vision. Um, specifically, if you're looking for a good monitor, you're looking for Dolby Vision IQ. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What are the potential legal repercussions of using a service like yellowduck.tv for live streams? Is there a distinction between the potential outcomes versus the likely outcomes of the terms of service violations? Go, Jason. Mm, yeah, the potential downside is they can pull your stream. I, I don't think there would really be legal action unless you're rebroadcasting copyrighted material. Yeah, people, people use it all the time. <laughs> like it's not. So, um, you know, the this is part of the, so for those listening don't know what this is related to, this is typically related to streaming to Instagram. Um, now there's other ways to do that um, in a way that doesn't break the TOS. I believe the YOLO box is doing it because what the YOLO box is doing, the YOLO box streaming um, box is, is, it is entering Instagram as an Android phone. And then it's passing video into it, um, you know, in a professional way. So it's instead of having the phone camera, it says, oh, I got an HDMI for the camera. So technically the, the yellow box doesn't break the terms of service. Whereas if you use Yellow Duck and you're basically using Yellow Duck to grab onto the RTMP input, then you are breaking that, that TOS. Um, I have seen them put their thumb down on on certain streams but generally uh i've only seen it once or twice out of i mean everybody i mean everybody who wants to stream something professional to instagram uses yellow duck so um you, but the yellow box again has been picking up speed in that area 
Um, there's no legal repercussion. I mean, Facebook's not going to come after you or Instagram's not going to come after you for doing it. The legal repercussions are you're doing something for a client and the, and the stream ends and then you have to explain to them why the stream ended. So for the most, most uh, high profile things that we've done, we've tried to stay inside of the, ter- uh, the TOS, which means we're either using phones, we shoot a screen with a phone, which is still legal, but we can do a full production in it. Um, and that's a really, it takes like half a day or a day to get set up because you have to tune the phone perfectly with a tent and line it up and everything else. But you can do that. And we, we've taken ones where we've taken satellite a satellite production into our office and then pumped it through a phone through the screen and had it, you know, had it just look like it was... It would, you were just want, you know it was just being shot um, in, in, into Instagram, so you can do that as well. Um, but again, I think probably the most stable way to get into Instagram these days is the Yolo box. Um, it's not perfectly stable, but it's the, the most stable way without breaking TOS. Uh, next question, John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. When planning for travel with a Pelican case, what's your strategy for packing that minimizes checked baggage? Good, Bill. My oddest habit, and this is one I learned really early. I have a little handheld scale that straps on a handle of a piece of luggage. And the reason I say that is because you're trying to pack for travel. The thing I've messed up on most is weight, particularly if I'm trying to get the minimum number of bags. And I've gone over 50 pounds more times than I can tell you. And when you do that, unless you're traveling on a press pass or something like that, puts you on a whole different category and they can really snag you in terms of extra charges. So I have found myself, sadly, too many times on my knees at airport check-ins trying to redistribute weight among three pelican cases to get one of them below the 50 pound thing so that I don't get snapped with an extra couple hundred dollars for traveling with it. Um, Packing deserves its whole second hour. Travel is complex and it is not getting any easier in my experience out there. Good, Courtney. Yeah, as Bill said, the weight thing is how the airlines stab you for extra money is if it's over 50 pounds, it used to be 75 pounds, so you could get away with a lot. The problem with Pelican cases and ATA-rated cases that are plywood and ABS plastic are the cases themselves weigh about 30 pounds in some cases. So depending upon what you're putting in it, you know, you're going to go over that 50-pound limit pretty quickly, and the rates just go up astronomically. Uh, it's it's not linear. It, it, it goes, the rate goes up, you know, like four pounds over, it goes to this price, and then it, that price doubles again, the extra price doubles again, or like you know, an ounce over that next tier level of overweight. So be very careful about weight. You might want to check and see if you have Pelican Air cases, which is a, more of a foamed polyethylene than the strict uh, molded polyethylene. That, so it's a little bit, it's about 20% lighter. Sorry if you hear the honking horn. <laughs> Uh, yep. But any, <laughs> yeah, the the um, uh, the first thing I do is that you know I'm going to carry on the things that are the, I have to make sure that I can do my show with whatever I carry on. That's usually in my head. Like I I could do a show. It may not be the show I planned. I might have 22 cases that I'm sh- I'm I'm checking, but something will come out the other end with the, what I have in there. And I usually have a 15 some version of a 1510. Um, um, I use a Pelican Air um, for that 1510. It has to fit within that 22 by 14 by 9 um, box. And so that's something that I'm going to take with me. 
um, with a backpack. Um, and then um, and those are the, everything has to kind of fit into those things. My my little mobile rig that I join office hours from has to fit into that fifteen ten. So everything you know, and I just everything I think about about how I do it has to fit into that box. Um, as far as uh, check bags, once you get a tech check bags, we use a. When Pixelcore was doing this every day, uh, we used a Rubbermaid digital utility scale. It goes up to about 150 pounds. You can pick the things up, but it's easier just to set them down on top of the scale. So you can tear that scale. Tearing is resetting it, but you can tear the scale and then set it down. And um, and we would just try to have everything sitting. The reason we put it under 70 pounds if we were, ch- if we were doing it was mostly because... If you have status, um, remember that when you're be- when you're getting stuff. If you have status, um, the like let's say one k status, uh, you get three bags for free under seventy pounds. So we'd get up to sixty nine pounds and keep them all in there. Everyone on your same ticket gets two. So if you put five people on that ticket, you get your three plus another 10 bags. And so you end up with 13 bags under 70 pounds that can all go with you, you know, with you on the way out, or at least this is the way it used to work. Um, so you could take 20 bags and you could, you could move two tons uh, or about a ton and a half of, of or a ton or a ton and, or half, almost a ton of, of uh, gear um, to Japan for about 500 bucks <laughs> overnight. So anyway, so it's, a, it's, a, it's pretty useful. Next question. Next question comes from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Would heat be a concern if you enclose an Obspot Tiny 2 entirely inside a teleprompter hood? It is a consideration. I just got that camera. I'm just looking where I put that camera. Um, I, I, I was we were talking about it the other day. And I, I bought one, and now, of course, I've set it down, and I can't figure out where I set it. Anyway, we bought the Obspot, and I'm comparing it right now with the, um, and I'm just I'm a little mystified about where it went. Uh, we're comparing it with the, with the um, Insta360 Link. Uh, it's a little bit bigger. It's a lot hotter <laughs> than the Insta360 Link. So it, it definitely, oh, here it is. I put it back in the case. That's why I couldn't see it. So this is the, um, this is the Obspot here. So we're just starting to test it and uh, slightly larger than the Insta360. Uh, it has a magnetic bottom, which is really kind of cool because it'll just snap onto things, but it also snap onto its little its little holder, but it also has a quarter 20 right in the bottom of the base unit. I do think heat could become an issue. So if I did this, I'd probably have some ventilation or even fins that we pushed up against it. So what I'm thinking about, because I am thinking about putting this into basically what I, my plan right now with one of these, as we start to do it, is if you think about a monitor down here, having a piece of glass, so this is your teleprompter glass, and I'm planning to take one of these cameras and just put it right here behind the glass and then vacuum form this glass. We've done this in the past, so it's not I, it's not the first time I've done vacuum forming to a webcam. And so, um, but the, the advantage here is if we build a little opening this can all be kind of felted in. And, and, and if I make this big enough, I can, it can be a PTZ that's moving around, but it doesn't have any, it's just, you just open it up and it'll work. Um, and, um, and so, and then this, the idea is that this box will be here and probably put a Mac mini in it. We'll have a monitor here, um, probably put some audio and, and then have, you know, service ports on the side. That's kind of what we're fiddling with at the moment. Um, and uh, so trying to figure out which one of these would work um, to do that, but you just build the cavity for it. Because this one's getting so hot, I am thinking that what I probably end up doing is putting a conductive, um, basically conductive, uh, not gel, but a sticker that you see oftentimes on NVMe um, storage. Put that sticker on it and then give it basically some um, some metal fins <laughs> to basically offshoot some of that that heat, um, I think is something that I'm, I'm starting to think about pretty hard. Go ahead, Brett. 
uh, real quick, um, if you do also have the uh, HDMI adapter <clears throat> that Obspot sells, that thing can really cook if it's plugged in for a while. Well, and is it, it, it the, uh, but the HDMI adapter doesn't pass control, does it? Um, I haven't. No. Yeah, that's the problem with it is, it, is that once you plug it in that way, you can't get control of the camera. You can uh, if you still use the re- um, the separate remote control. But sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's early like days. It's, yeah. I mean, I think that the big problem we have is we can't, I mean, I think that these can't, either OBSBOT or, uh, Link or, or Insta360 needs to build one with, I mean, I would pay more if they made the chip a little bit bigger. Um, so they just go to a one inch chip uh, or even better yet, you know, an APS size chip. But let's just say a one inch chip along with a HDMI output at 500 bucks, they'd sell as many as they could make, you know, like that, that, that would really solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. Next question. Claudic Lopez Waterman in Galesteo, New Mexico says, looking to replace my dad's very old iMac with a Mac Mini. Am I correct in assuming that he won't need much extra RAM? He uses it for Zoom, word processing, and not much more. For him, what seems best is lots of storage. Other features at the base stats. I go, Jason. Yeah, based on what I know about your use case, I think you would be exactly right. Uh, The only push that I would think of would be if he ends up needing more I.O. to get all four Thunderbolt ports instead of Thunderbolt and USB-C, that aside, your RAM is going to be, your RAM will be just fine for at least five years. Yeah, I think for what we use, we use, I mean, a lot of the stuff we use just for Zoom has all been 8 gig. Um, So that, that totally makes sense. You might want to think about an external drive. Now, you can get some of them. Saatchi makes one that I've been having mixed results with, but I think OWC also makes one that you can basically set underneath the Mac Mini, and then that becomes the drive. And so then it's just the same form factor. It kind of feels like it's the same computer. The reason that you want to try, if your dad's willing to, try to have him use an external drive is that if you have all your stuff on an external drive and something goes wrong with the computer, you need to replace it. If all of your stuff, your your iPhone or photos and everything else is on that external drive, you just simply unplug it, take it to be worked on, and you don't have a lot of data in, in the computer itself. So that, that oftentimes is a, um, a little bit safer there. But otherwise, um, I think your 8 gigs is going to be totally sufficient uh, for, uh, for what you're doing. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I concur the 8 gig. And I, I recently bought one of these. I, I was worried that it was one of the uh, uh, Samsung, but it's a Lexar, one terabyte. It's portable USB-C, and it's very high-speed uh, communications over USB-C, 2200, something like that, megabytes per second. Uh, so something that's like this, it's portable, and it can uh, give you an extra terabyte that you can move off and uh, archive if you need to. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC here on the panel says, any first-hand experience with the quality of USA-made Gaffer Power brand gaffers tape? I have been ordering Dabco, but they've been on back order. You good, Bill. We could and have talked for entire days about gaffers tape. It's one of those subjects that is constantly interesting to me because there's so many aspects to it. I have bought two different orders of the same brand of gaffer's tape and their sticky quality has been substantially different. That always bothers me. So eventually I think I end up with like Sherco or something like that um, or Technic because there was some consistency with that. Also the age of the roll can make a big difference in how, you know, if if it's really old, it gets really weird in terms of its stiction. Yeah, and I use ProGaff um, almost exclusively for what I do. Uh, Next question. 
Nick Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. You mentioned using AWS Elemental Link to send a program to remote servers. Do you ever have to, a use case to send a program as SRT to a remote location? If so, what do you use to send the SRT? You know, SRT isn't just really isn't really in my core. Um, you know, our our process. We use Element. We still use the Elemental Cloud. So usually, we find a way to get it to El, to the to the Elemental Cloud inside of AWS, and then we you know so it, it can be that can be RTMP, SRT, um, a variety of other things. And from there, we can use between Media Connect and Media Live, send it to uh, as SRT to some other place. That is generally how we pass SRT around. Um, there are more direct ways to do it. Again, you can use OBS. You can use Epifan, um, as far as hardware goes, it'll do SRT contribution. Um, you can do, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. That's how I do it, um, or how we do it. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania says Adobe Mogurt, M-O-G-R-T files, allow graphics such as lower third titles to be time-stretched on a timeline to increase or decrease proportional elements. I wish to recreate these graphics in Fusion. How do I enable proportional settings versus fixed animations? I do not know how to do that. <laughs> I don't. I, I I know how to do that in motion. So motion will do that in fusion. I don't know how to build. Um, yeah, I don't know if that does that. That's a really good one. We are going to bring someone on from fusion. We had a great conversation at uh, at Seagraph. We're going to bring someone on to um, uh, to talk about fusion. So save that question, and we'll see if we can't uh, find out if they if they know that within the next couple of weeks. Uh, next question. David Brady, New York City. Has anyone figured out OBSBOT Tiny 4K OSC implementation? I cannot figure out how to send commands to the camera vis-a-vis -a, -vis a companion using generic OSC. Just got it. And remember, it's Tiny 2. So I don't. I think the Tiny 2 is the one that's OSC compatible, not Tiny, not the original Tiny. Um, and since we just got it, I haven't figured it out yet, but we are going to be, that's the main reason I'm testing this camera is OSC control. So we'll uh, come back to us a little bit later and we'll see if we can't figure it out. You'll probably see us in after hours trying to doodle with it. Next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman, Galisteo, uh, New Mexico, and I pronounced that wrong again, I'm sure. Is there any good market for used Sony cameras or do people not really get rid of them? Oh, there's a big market. I mean, you can definitely find lots of used Sony cameras on eBay. So there should be reasonably good, you know, everything from the 5100s all the way up to the A7s. There's plenty of them on eBay on a, on almost a regular basis. I don't really buy used cameras because um, usually I'm afraid that there's going to be dust or scratches on the sensor. So um, so that's why I tend to avoid it. But, but that's uh, overall, um, that is the thing. Yeah, Bill, you're laughing about something. No, no, no. I was. I, it's a comment made off camera. Sorry. Oh, got it. Okay. My Next apologies. Question. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Gizmodo mentioned that Threads have lost nearly 80% of its daily active users. Do you think that's just a temporary slump or do you think Threads will grow? And there's a link there. Go ahead, Peter. Well, it's an interesting question. I think we're in the trough of disillusionment right now, uh, to use a metaphor. And I think uh, one of the benefits of Threads was you got to reset your social graph from Instagram. And I think that's why you saw that initial surge. Uh, the latest data shows the trend will decay for a bit, but then will balance and then increase probably about 10 or 15%. So I think once people uh, get realigned between X, Threads, Mastodon, um, and the others, uh, I think we'll see Threads be successful over time. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how they how they do there. I think that a lot of us just went up to make sure that our that, that we kept our name and then we left and then it wasn't that much better than anything else. And I feel like jumping from th from 
X to threads is like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. So I'm, I'm not sure a lot of us really are that excited about it. Um, next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico, USA. Has anyone used Zoom phone for their business? Is it worth it for small business? I'm so sick and tired of POTS, plain old television service issues, especially with CenturyLink. Good, John. I don't have direct um, experience with Zoom. We recently went to RFP for our phone system, and Zoom just didn't have quite all the functions we needed as a full contact center. But it was pretty impressive what they have for a, a first attempt, so it definitely would be worth looking into. Another option you might consider is Amazon Connect because it's totally usage-based, so it would be probably a lower cost overall. Go ahead, Jason. If you've got the bandwidth, I think it's phenomenal. Um, and yes, I, I've, I've dealt way too many times with CenturyLink. It is not a pleasant experience. Um, Guy loved Zoom phone, and I, I think that's, you know, that's all you need to know about it. I think it's great. Yeah, I think that Zoom, Zoom is doing a pretty good job there. I mean, I think that that, it, I think that, I don't understand even how Ring Central is going to survive that process, <laughs> you know, so that, that um, you know, things have gone actually fairly well for, for uh, Zoom as far as the telephone. I thought it was kind of an ancillary business for them, but it's, uh, it's worked out um, fairly effectively. And so I would definitely take a look at it. It seems to be successful in that, in that realm. And now we're going to jump into our second hour. Uh, and I'm going to hand it off to Ryan uh, Rademan, uh, who the, we have an incredible group of people uh, who have come together uh, to talk about project management and project management tools. And Ryan's going to help us uh, kind of kick it off and, and manage the beginning of this conversation. Take it away, Ryan. Thank you, Alex. Good uh, morning, everybody. And good afternoon to those of you not uh here in the same time zone. So we're excited to go deeper as a part of kind of the Monday uh, business theme for office hours into a bit of a series on project management. So for today, uh, for the first in that theme, we've assembled a group of specialists on project management. We'll take a moment to introduce uh, the four of us that have kind of organized. So my name is Ryan Rademan. I sit in Chicago, Illinois, and I'm focused day to day on construction tech. So as you can imagine, construction companies are very focused on project management and project management tools. So I manage implementations of those tool sets. And so a big part of my professional life revolves around project management. And I am joined uh, next by Peter Buck, who will introduce himself. Hi, Peter Buck, a San Francisco-based technologist uh, focused really on the professional services space. Worked at uh, PwC, Duff, HBR, and most recently at NetDocuments running product strategy. So I'm about products and technology and helping businesses grow. Next, we'll have Craig. Uh, sure. Hey, folks. Uh, Craig McFarland. I'm uh, CTO, co-founder of a software and services company. We, we basically help uh, large enterprises, large organizations uh, migrate data centers, migrate to the cloud, all those sort of things. Large IT, large projects. Uh, and so happy to be here. Awesome. Finally, Mark. And my name is Mark Giuliani from Giuliani Associates Architects. Uh, we're a small A&E firm that does work projects that range in size from 200 square foot coffee kiosk at airports and travel plazas, all the way up to hundreds of thousands of square feet of vehicle maintenance, whether it's an aircraft, a train, or fleets of trucks. I also run a small marketing company, Data Tech Digital, that owns two radio stations in Delaware, and we help small businesses brand each other. 
So now that we've introduced ourselves, we'll get into the topic of project management. And today we're going to start with tools. But we know tools, well, we chose tools because we know the audience here likes tools. But we also know that project management is about more than tools. So it's about initiating, planning, executing, and it's really about having a program. And programs have goals and budgets and schedules and deliverables. And they include teams, whether the team members are owners or clients, which provide approval, or users that may be helping to define a program. There's also, in my industry of architecture and engineering, there's teams that are made up of architects, many engineers, many types of engineers, contractors, again, the owners and the user groups, and sometimes authorities having jurisdiction that have to make sure the project's complying with codes. But we'd really like to hear from you. We're going to talk about tools today, but we'd like to hear from you in the chat about what you'd like to hear about in the future. And we've come up with some ideas that you can see on the slide in front of you, if we could put that up. That has, um, you know, it starts, we've basically created it as a top half and top of fold, if you will, uh, with item one, two, five, and six being project topics that we thought we could talk about that are general in nature and probably only need to be covered once for each industry. And the bottom half, three, four, seven, and eight, talk about project management in different areas of focus. So for agency work, which we hope to be coming, having a presentation on later this year, or different industries like architecture, engineering, construction, and other professional services. We also want to review uh, different types of tools, and, and these we can go over on a more frequent basis because there are so many tools. And then finally, talk about the good, bad, and ugly of projects. So please put in the chat what interests you, and even if you want to have a basic uh, project management 101 on the essential, essential elements of project management. Now I'm going to turn it over to Peter, who's going to talk to us a little bit more about project management. Thanks, Mark. Uh, should be a fun session today. Keep those questions coming in the chat. Um, ultimately, we are all project managers. Uh, from the to-do list we keep uh, to the large, well-funded projects that we deliver on time and over uh, budget. <laughs> I'm joking on that topic. But the point is that uh, there's a lot of complexity in this space, and there's also a lot of interesting opportunities. Um, but as many say, uh, project management is like waste management. You don't want more of it. And so I think of project management really as a movie. You need a villain, a hero, and a result. And so this brings me to two reasons that uh, project management exists. The first is to solve the silver burrito problem. Maybe we can show the burrito. You see this on somebody's desk, and everybody knows exactly what it is what to expect. But projects are like the silver burrito. There are probably 10 standard deviations of what expectations uh, are in that burrito. Cheese, rice, pico de gallo, you go on and on and on. So everybody needs to get on the same page and understand the same problem. Um, and so everybody typically has been burned by the promise that something would be quick, but you end up working late nights. So two ideas. One, instead of suggesting something be quick, ask somebody, what would you need for this project to be doable in the next 20 days? This provides agency. 
So again, a couple examples might be instead of saying we've got a decay in the number of users signing up on our site, uh, you can turn that into a much more positive uh, 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 hypothetical. Those hypotheticals we can cover uh, throughout this session, but you can define it as a problem statement. What are we trying to solve? What are the benefits of the business? But do that in a really simple form and do it in a narrative before you start working with tools. So for example, um, instead of saying clients always abandon our website, you could say clients abandon at too high of rate and they fail to sign up at the last step. Now you have something you can solve. The second thing I want to cover around project management uh, is ultimately what is broadly called the herding cats problem. We've all been there uh, before. Uh, we all have a series of team members that we want to participate in a project, but they have different uh, objectives, uh, different challenges. And so the idea is how do you bring those teams together in a way that makes uh, sense? And so my proposition is that it might not be the kittens, it might be your project and how you frame that. Are you clear on the outcome as a project manager? Sure, it's easy to be pulled off course as team members and um, work on different projects. They might be polite when they're sitting in a project meeting and then undermine the team later. So there's a number of dimensions, four come to mind. Personalities, each cat has a different uh, background, intentions, introvert, extrovert. Distractions, they get back to their desk and now suddenly their phone calls. Time, time is both a headwind and a tailwind. You gotta make sure that you position it correctly with your stakeholders. The collective energy of the team and adaptability. So the point about herding cats and silver burritos are four. You gotta have clear objectives. Be careful about shifting requirements. Don't be reactive and ultimately a misaligned or understood a team. So under un, unwrapping the silver burrito, you can create a clear vision of what the project is and a shared problem statement. Those are two items for success for project management. So I'll turn it back to the, the panel uh, to talk a little bit about tools. That's one of our topics today. Craig's gonna join me. But before I do, I want to show this screen, which is um, what's called a market map. Those familiar with it, this is an array of uh, product categories in the product management or project management space. For those interested in this space, uh, this market is a two and a half billion dollar market in 2020. It's going to grow to a six and a half billion dollar market. So it's big segment. Compare that to the AV industry at uh, 3.2 billion uh, a year ago, it's gonna grow to 8 billion. So you can see it's a substantial market. So there's tons of tools. The goal today is to give you a taste of what some of those tools can do and help you navigate uh, them. I think there are some questions in the chat about how we do simple uh, project management. I'm gonna show you some of those today. So Craig, I think you have some interesting ideas for us. Yeah, you know, I think uh, there's probably only one category that's larger than project management is a, is a big tent of tools. And I think part of that is uh, maybe text editors or whatnot, there's probably more of them. But when you think of all the various uh, categories and you had some of them up there on the slide, uh, these are just two aspects uh, of complexity. And I'm sorry for the background, I've got construction uh, going on right in the background here. Uh, 
so complexity versus how formal it is. So if you're running a really large, if you're building a, a satellite uh, that's going to take you know five years, that's one end. Or if you're just working with a buddy trying to build something and you need to organize your thoughts, that's on the lower left end. Uh, so looking at the various aspects, these are this is just a sample grade of those two aspects. Um, uh, actually, if you can go to the next slide. There you go. So one of my big points, uh, so as a CTO, I look at a lot of tools and I do a lot of uh, tool selection. Picking, it doesn't have to be perfect, perfect, but uh, going through and identifying, what do we really need? A lot of times people jump into a tool because they used it on a previous project or their buddy recommended it or whatnot. It might be a great tool, but it really helps just to take a few minutes and here's a, a few uh, things I usually look at as far as picking the right tool. Uh, just write down uh, and then share with the other uh, principal people that you're in the project with. Uh, uh, various aspects of, of what do you need? What's the situation we're trying to resolve? Uh, how big is the scope of the project? How complicated is it? Is it going to have uh, 50 tasks or is it going to have 5,000? Uh, how long is it? And going through all of these will let you uh, get a better picture and you can share the shopping around comparing. If you'd all just keep it in your head, it gets a little fuzzy and then uh, evaluating one versus another uh, is really difficult and everybody then uh, switches to the, what's their favorite tool that they've used before. And so you can see here, uh, we took that original three by three and filled it in with some things. So you can see on the bottom left, uh, things, uh, I'm not sure the logos, uh, but on the bottom uh, left would be personal to-do lists and things. Uh, and going through Airtable all the way up to ServiceNow, Microsoft Project, and Asana, and Atlassian has a lot of uh, uh, large enterprise tooling. Um, and it really just depends on the situation uh, that you're working with. Uh, so I'd recommend go through that list of those seven or eight different uh, aspects, share it with the team, and then go shopping around. And actually, it really makes the selection a lot easier because things will get dropped out. Greg, one thing we're going to talk about today, too, pertinent to you know that slide, is that some of these tools are suited and tailored for a particular industry. So we talked about construction as an example, where you've got industry-specific tools designed for managing a construction project. But among these that we're looking at on on kind of this um, this two by two grid, I would say the biggest thing I'd point out is that some of these are very oriented around the software development lifecycle, and some of these are much more general, where they could manage a project um, across any any domain. Um, and then you know the other thing is. Uh, there, there's a question that we'll be addressing later on on agile project management. So some of these tool sets are very oriented around the agile methodology, whereas others are a little bit more organized around a traditional waterfall methodology when we're talking about kind of the two ends of the spectrum related to software development and the software uh, project management can, realm. Can you define this too for, for our listeners? Uh, define what agile versus waterfall. Agile versus waterfall. Sure. Yeah. Um, and please, the rest of the group, 
chime in here, but if you go back to like the eighties, when software development became um, something that was, you know, really happening at a large scale and, and, and across the world, uh, the waterfall methodology was um, pervasive. And there was basically kind of four steps to it. You've kind of got this, this design stage, uh, a build stage, a validate and, and deploy stage. And, and the point with waterfall is that when it came to requirements gathering, you needed to be very diligent in talking to all of the different stakeholders and ensuring that all of the requirements that one um, was going to ultimately want in the software were very well documented and very well organized before we began, began investing in build. Assume that back in the 80s and 90s, you were on on-premise infrastructure, so you had significant servers, server capacity that needed to be procured. And depending on all the features that we're going to need uh, to ultimately end up in place, depending on the number of users that were going to be hitting this system and the, the places from which those users would be hitting them, that that would actually be, you know, that would drive the physical infrastructure that was going to be needed to put in place, right? How many servers do we need? How big do they need to be? Where do they need to be located? Well, you fast forward to 2020. Three And even, I mean, I started in this industry 10 years ago, so let's just put ourselves in, in 2014. You've now got the cloud. So infrastructure became something that was much more elastically scalable, right? I mean, I think we all kind of know that Amazon was was a pioneer in, in getting us a server capacity that could be upgraded really quickly, even kind of on command as the user base of a particular software need group. And so when you've got a, uh, a infrastructure that can scale, you really have the opportunity to iterate in a much more tight cycle. And instead of needing to get all of your requirements nailed down well before a build takes place, you've got the opportunity to um, build some of the most critical baseline features and then get users into that system sooner than later to test and provide real-time feedback on what they actually need. And the benefit here is rather than us building proactively, right? If you picture, oh, I might have a family of six, and so I'm going to build a six-bedroom house because it's hard to add on, right? In software, we don't have that same challenge. In software, we can build the bare minimum. And as our family, our team, our company, uh, you know, as our needs grow, we can, we can iterate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, Ryan, it's interesting, uh, or Alex, to your point, it may be a picture is a good way to show waterfall versus agile. It comes back a little bit to the mythical man month that was an agile or a waterfall model, which is, you know, adding manpower to a late project uh, only makes it later. <laughs> uh, so if you show the screen just real quick, but to show you two visuals to identify a waterfall, this is a classic waterfall, a Gantt chart. Um, where a series of activities have to follow uh, in order with uh, resources planned well in advance. And if you one goes late, the rest goes late. Um, the contrast might be this, which is co commonly known as a Kanban board, where Agile allows you to, to say anything that does not deliver value to the end user or the project is considered waste. And so it's much more easy to move things from planned to in progress. So the idea is dynamically allocating resources time to get things done faster and ideally generate that uh, minimum viable product earlier. Well, and, and I think that before all these terms were there, I mean, I have a very, I had a very specific way of building things from the time I was in my, I mean, literally early teens. And I think for me, I always look at it as a little bit of a, both of, of what is now defined as agile and, and waterfall, which is that I would experiment with a lot of things and just kind of move them around as people reacted to them or as I reacted to them. 
and then lock into, okay, now I'm going to build something complicated that has to have, or I would build something complicated. The most recent software development thing I did, we had to build an iOS app and we had to do what would be considered waterfall to get it to where it, to, to, to release it. But as soon as it was released, it really felt a lot more like agile, you know, because we're now, now we're building all this stuff where we're constantly changing, you know, we're looking at things and responding to, uh, in a relatively real time way. I mean, build new builds every couple of days, as soon as, um, as soon as it's out there, but we had to get that base. Cause sometimes if you have too much agile, you end up with a chaotic code structure. And if you end up with too much waterfall, you built a, a city that no one wants to move into. So, so those are the things that, you know, those are the two sides of that, of that puzzle. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think it's interesting if you go back to, uh, Craig's and Ryan's opening remarks, I believe that there's a transition we're seeing between traditional project management into something called product management. Because ultimately today, things are presented digitally. Um, sorry, Mark, we don't always build buildings. Uh, and the idea that once you get it out there, you've got to curate it. And so the process that you did to build it might not be the process and tools you use to maintain it. And the yeah, I think the hard part for me has always been I, I tend to throw things away a lot. I tend want to throw the code away. <laughs> you know, like or just throw whatever I'm developing away. So we get to a certain point and that was useful to to expose what was necessary and then and then oftentimes switching to more of a waterfall to build out what we've now seen as necessary. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry for the introduction interruption. Well, yeah, I, so I think, Ryan, maybe we'll come back. Oh, sorry, Mark. Go ahead. That, that's okay. I was just going to say, I think, would it be fair to say that uh, the traditional waterfall method is when at the beginning of a project, you know what the goals are for the outcomes and agile, you don't know. You're You're trying to make this up as you go along and determine what's the most important factor to get resolved. Yeah, I'd say if you know, like building a bridge, you know what it's going to be. There's requirements. It's really clear. If you're doing something new and creative, as Alex was talking about, then you don't know how it's going to weave through. And I, I whenever I finish a project uh, that we did using an agile methodology, I'll look back to our original thoughts and ideas and imagine if we had done it waterfall, all the things we would have built that, and then throw away because that was a bad idea. But we didn't know it at the time. So if, if it's purely creative, go agile all the time. My, my, my favorite uh, quote when people think when I think about this is from Armageddon, the movie, where he goes, you know, this is what happens when you drill. You know, and he's, and he's like, oh, we cannot follow your little cards about what time we're supposed to be at things and everything else. It's just that the, you know, I think that the power of Agile is really that it's, you know, the, the map is never the territory. And so you're, you're hitting the ground. Um, you need to have enough infrastructure to figure it out, but then you need to be able to uh, respond. You know, I think that that, and it seems to be a little bit of a mix of both. Did you have more of a presentation to show before we jump into the questions? They're starting to stack up. No, let's let's jump in there. I would just observe one of the metaphors I use quite a bit, uh, Alex and team, is the iron triangle. You might have heard that before. The idea that you can do it fast, cheap, or well. So you have to pick two. Yeah. And I think agile is fast in navigating the iron triangle. So consider that as you're scoping your projects. Absolutely. Now let's go to the first question. Bo Cordell is in from Charleston, South Carolina. Do you take any cues from methodologies like Agile or Scrum for project management? Go ahead, Craig. Yeah, so as we're talking about from a uh, project management perspective, uh, 
the project manager's role is pretty much the same, whether it's waterfall or agile. It's it, it's all about organizing and making sure that everyone's clear about what's needed and, and whatnot. There's certain aspects of uh, each of the methodologies, like having a backlog versus an official plan. Uh, and so there's some mechanics of it. Uh, for our own company, we do a, a agile. It's not pure agile. It's a kind of a mix. Uh, and I think that's probably true for a lot of agile uh, places where you just mix and match uh, how much uh, planning you need to do, how much of a backlog and uh, how you adhere to having a daily scrum uh, talking about. And you want to define scrum and just talk about what, what. Yeah. So scrum actually comes from rugby where everybody gets together in a agile project. Everybody gets together for 15, 20 minutes. It's usually uh, originally it was when we were all in one place, everybody's standing together, hence the term scrum uh, and talking about, all right, here's my plan for the day and it might change tomorrow, but here's what I'm planning to do. And it's a good way of just touching base and everybody goes off and uh, does their thing, uh, keeps the team somewhat unified and you're able to grab uh, somebody that may be drifting off. So you're still working on that. Why? And uh, so the intent is uh, super quick, uh, 30 second, one minute at most update on what you're doing. Good, Ryan. What I would just remind uh, everybody is that, you know, when it comes to building buildings, uh, you're not going to be using an agile methodology, right? So uh, questions really pertinent to software projects. In some cases, I mean, I think that the, there's an agileness in the design. I mean, there, there oftentimes um, on larger projects or some of the projects that I've worked on, we I've seen people build pieces of it to see how that's going to work. I mean, on really large projects to see, or lots of models. So I guess the models would be kind of the agile nature of it. Um, I just watched that video that you talked about, the, the line yesterday. So what you can see behind them is millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on little pieces of cardboard <laughs> to figure out how to do it. So that's, would you say that, Ryan, would you think that as a, as an agile method before you go into a waterfall, which is that you have to start pouring concrete. Yeah, good point, right? So, I mean, Mark can speak to the fact that there is a phase of uh, construction called pre-construction, and there is a discipline within that called VDC. And so now that that has moved to a much more digital process where, you know, you're not just simulating in this case um, what the building will look like. Uh, I watched a documentary produced by the B1M on a tower that was just completed down the road from me here called Salesforce Tower uh, at Wolf Point in Chicago. They didn't just simulate what the building would look like. They simulated every single step of the construction process, including some specifics around how they were going to get the crane up and how are they how they were going to get the crane out at the end of it because they had boxed themselves in in a way where basically they had to use the river in the underground road system to get that crane out in uh, in small chunks. So uh, planning is basically simulated in its entirety for for mega projects and then, you know, plays out in real time as close to that as as, as possible. But, uh, you know, there's there's a, a point where you get from, uh, you know, conceptual design to uh, construction design where where the iteration starts to be minimized. Go ahead, John. The important thing on project management is getting the project done and completing it within your scope. And it really depends on what you're trying to achieve as to what your 
approaches work best. So if I'm building a compliance training, I'm going to follow an approach much more like a waterfall approach where I have a defined end and I just want to outline the steps to get there. I also lead a team that does a lot of process improvement and efficiencies uh, projects. And that's really an agile approach because done never happens and we're constantly creating um, new tasks for our backlog. A backlog is just a list of tasks essentially that the team chooses what to work on over a given period of time called a sprint. And so we use the agile methodology for that team because our work's never complete. We're always trying to improve just a little bit. And if you look at, like, for instance, how we cover these conferences, what you're looking at is a giant, in my opinion, a giant agile method, you know, which is that we have a sprint, which is the conference itself, and then we take a break, but we're trying to redefine something completely. So it's an experiment. Every single one of these is slightly different than the ones in the past. And we're trying to find the, the we're not trying, we don't have a solution. We're trying to, we have a goal. A goal is to inc- inc- include people from all over the world into the experience of that conference. But how we do that is almost completely undefined. And we're constantly like, what if we do a bunch of videos? What if we do a bunch of this? What if we do a bunch of that? Two or three years from now, we will have a way that we just do this. Like, this is the way we, you know, but but we didn't look at the past as much as we look at just the goal, you know, and staying focused on that goal and then constantly experimenting with what that looks like. Go ahead, Peter. Well, I think it comes back a little bit to the silver burrito problem that, you have to define, regardless of the methodology, what problem are you solving, but do it in simple business terms and why is it worth solving? That's, that's, you can spend um, a day or less on that and you get everybody aligned and uh, you're off to the races, regardless of the methodology. Good, Mark. So just take a step back for a few minutes about the construction. I know that when I started in architecture, there were clearly defined lines between the design of a project where you started with a program and then you went to schematic design, then on to design development, and then prepared the contract documents for the construction documents. Then it went into construction. Today, with all the technology of both project management and also building information modeling, that is blurring together and happening at a much faster pace because the technology is there to enable it to happen at a faster pace. Next question. Next one comes from Dave Troutman at Edmonton, Canada. Are most management software tools extremely complicated? Are there any lightweight tools for the rest of us? Go ahead, Ryan. So Monday.com is probably an example of one that is particularly lightweight. And then remember, too, there's a lot of to-do list tools. So on some of the market maps that you've seen here, um, you've seen things like Microsoft to-do. And, you know, that and Planner from Microsoft work together. And that one of those is just basically, hey, here are the things that I need to do. Planner introduces a couple more complexities where, hey, now I can at least put those across swim lanes into a to-do, doing, and done column. You know, from there you scale up to, can I assign these to other people instead of just being assigned to me? So uh, certainly there are tools that we've uh, mentioned here today that require a lot of infrastructure and upkeep that are, you know, um, not defined as lightweight. Um, a lot of these are defined as lightweight. And we haven't yet mentioned probably the most famous and utilized management project management tool even in 2023, uh, which is Microsoft Excel, right? Uh, or Google Sheets. <laughs> or Google Sheets, exactly right. You, you don't need a sophisticated tool set to be an effective project manager. Go ahead, Peter. Maybe we revert back to the three by three grid just to throw that up on the screen. I think this is really instructive, Ryan, your points around uh, 
simple tools. If you look in the far left quadrant, uh, the very lower left is Planner from Microsoft, To-Do List from Microsoft. Above that is what Brian was just mentioning and Alex around spreadsheets, Google Sheet, Excel. And then on the top left is uh, tools that are gaining in popularity. Uh, one of my favorite, personally, is Smart Suite. Um, it was spent two and a half years in development uh, and recently emerged as an interesting con contributor. The other is Notion. But there's this theme of what's called the work OS. And I think this goes to the listener's question about simple tools. There are four products in the work OS category. Airtable, Monday.com, ClickUp, and uh, finally, SmartSuite. And these are designed really for the modern web era and they're more visual, easier to use, and they're inexpensive. They're less than $7 per user uh, per month. Um, so that's a place to start. And then if you really wanna go big, uh, uh, you can go back to the Microsoft uh, uh, Project Online um, or ServiceNow Smart, uh, Smart Sheet versus Smart Suite to get into the traditional Gantt. And those will start to be in the 20 to $50 per user per month. So uh, money talks in this game. Go ahead, Craig. Um, mute. Uh, yeah, and I'd say there's much like when I talked about the requirements or needs, what's your situation, how many people, uh, but look at the peripheral other things like do you need to uh, share documents a lot? That's not pure project management, but it is, uh, uh, more just the work OS uh, kind of thing. Uh, and so what other things are you using? Is there something from the same vendor that you're already, uh, the team's already working with? Uh, so if you're using Google Docs, you know, maybe Google Sheets okay, uh, but it's really looking at all of those needs as they mentioned. Good, Mark. So just going back to the spreadsheets and the worksheets, uh, I've seen some very sophisticated but easy to use uh, programs where people have just put together documents that are tied to each other. I think the one thing that's coming out with all these specific programs is that they tie more of the project together. So they tie it together with the team. So you know all who's on the team, what the role is, how to get in touch with them. Then you have the ability to file share, which you don't really have with a worksheet. Next question. Next one comes from Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. How do you get a team on board with using a project management tool with a team that's not coming from an edict from higher ups? Good, Mark. So this is very interesting. Um, it, it's hard to do when there is no edict from hires up. Most of the projects that we work on over a certain dollar value have in the contract language what programs will be used, whether it's the type of building information modeling or project management software so that the whole team knows ahead of time before they sign the contract, what do they have to be part of in order to make the project run smoothly. If you don't have that, it's, it's difficult to get all these different teams that are used to these different programs to tie together on one. I think Slack did it pretty well. I, I know that when we, when my producer started adding Slack to the system, I was like, why are we adding another layer of something, something or whatever? And before I knew it, I, you know, within six months, I was like, why are you emailing me this? You just put it in Slack. <laughs> I was like, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I think on the Slack, uh, Microsoft Teams point, if you look at the market maps, we can share these in a separate uh, future session. The ecosystem there is massive. And that's uh, why, because it's easy. It's simple. The second point I'd make about uh, how to get this done right is to get buy-in. Take sort of the Japanese executive style and make sure that all the constituencies know what's trying to be achieved before you launch a tool. 
a tool without a purpose um, is uh, a fool's errand. So be sensitive to that. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You you need to make sure that the tool is something that's useful and is making your team better. Um, you can include your team in the selection process for the tool. I know for my team that does the Agile approach, we use just an Excel spreadsheet, and I designed it the way I thought that we needed to do it as a team, but I let them take it on from there, and I delegated that to them. It looks nothing like I originally had, um, but it works for them, and they're getting the work done. And so in this case, I'm just uh, closing my mouth and letting them work. Go ahead, Craig. Yeah, speaking as both a uh, as a worker and a higher up, uh, I'd prefer not to have something dictated from hires up that may not know all the details of how the team needs to work. Uh, so uh, going through the requirements as a team without mandates is uh, is actually a really good thing. I found I, I found it as oftentimes the higher up is I would just be like, well, well, here, this is where I'm going to be. <laughs> so you guys can figure out what you want to do. It wasn't really an edict, but more of a, a carrot. <laughs> like if you want to actually ask a question. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. For solo developers or small teams under 10 persons, what project management tools do you find most useful? It sounds to me like... Yeah, it okay, sounds right. to me like this question is um, you know, organized around the software scenario. And so GitHub is what I would recommend. GitHub has the ability to um, build out a backlog and uh, assign backlog items to people and uh, lay those out by uh, milestone, by assignee, by stage or status. So um, that's probably a good place to start for software. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, for uh, source code management, perfect. GitHub is brilliant. Um, if you're doing product management, a couple products that are nice. One is called AHA, A-H-A, exclamation point. It's cheap and it does a great job of generating roadmaps and getting teams to do burndowns. Uh, the second is RoadMonk, uh, R-O-A-D, Monk. Um, I think separately, first time at the end, there's a series of uh, product catalogs we built for this audience to help, and those are on that catalog. Go ahead, Brent. Um, the other thing, uh, when you're on a small team, in order to integrate um, different tools, uh, Zapier really shines um, to be able to keep costs down and, and to have things talk to Google Sheets or to Trello or um, you know send notifications to Slack to um, keep communications up um, on a shoestring budget. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What project management tools have the best reporting and interoperability features? Go, Peter. Uh, this is an interesting category because uh, uh, I use Excel uh, or Sheets tons for uh, reporting. There's a series of other products, uh, Power BI, if you need to do visualization and dashboard or Tableau are just absolutely great. Um, Maybe in a second, I'll call, I'll bring up a series of other uh, products, but um, um, Power BI is my favorite. Next question. CJ Koval in uh, Downington, Pennsylvania says, I am a material, uh, he's a material uh, manufacturer for metal cladding. Do you have any experience getting construction projects from a source like Construct Connect into a sales project flow using Salesforce? Uh, looking for real-time changes to get pushed to our team. Good, Mark. So I haven't seen this from Construct Connect, but we're not contractors, we're architects. Where we see it more is from Dell Tech has a series of products for uh, anybody that works, has done government contracts, knows about Dell Tech. But they have a series of products that will go out and find where the projects are, and then you can tie it into your marketing. Code Ryan. 
I built exactly this um, flow on a couple of occasions. So similar to Construct Connect, you've got Building Connected and you've got Dodge Data. And these are some, you know, in those cases are basically publicly available feeds of projects that are coming down the pipeline, right? Dodge Data is very tuned into the permitting process in a city, right? So it, it knows bids that are coming down the pipe. Now, Salesforce, if you're a materials manufacturer, is the place where you want to put in new leads or opportunities that you might have to sell all of the metal cladding for, for one of these buildings that's going up, right? So um, certainly Salesforce has an open set of APIs and with uh, a tool like Zapier or a more robust tool like a, a MuleSoft, which is a, a, an integration platform that Salesforce owns, you absolutely can hook into these publicly available data feeds or, or private data feeds like Construct Connect and set it up so that when something hits your criteria or when you manually trigger it, it will pull those in and put them into a, um, you know, a leader and opportunity object in Salesforce. Next question. Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. What should you look for in a project management tool for non-technical teams? For example, sales, content creation, and so forth. Go, John. Yeah, you want your tool to be as complex as needed and no more complicated than that. So I'd really look for a tool that has all the features you need and is really easy for your users to get in and get out and document their work. Because um, when someone doesn't see the value of adding a ton of information to a field about budget or something like that, you want them, you want to make it easier for them to do what you want them to do. And so as the simpler, the better, in my opinion. Good, Peter. I, I agree. And I think if you show the screen real quick, there's um, a visual, how it looks to the user community is also very important. Here's an example of a smart a suite. Um, they're similar from monday.com. Now, anybody can understand this page and they would more likely engage in that experience. So I think that's uh, super important. The second is make it available where they live. If you're a Slack business, you can uh, then have it in Slack. If you're a Teams business, make it available in Teams. All these products in, in, integrate there. So take the extra time with your technical teams to make that happen to smooth the way. And oftentimes uh, in, in the projects that I've worked on, both for other companies as well as my own, uh, we um, shield a lot of the creatives and a lot of folks from that with coordinators. So we have coordinators and coordinator assistant coordinators, and their job is to tie into those tools. And they simply have small calls with the creatives. Where are you? They have a checklist of how are you doing here? How are you doing here? How are you doing here? And they make no attempt. We make no attempt to have the creatives actually interact with the tools at all. Um, so we have coordinators that follow up with them and they have their list that they work through. Um, and, and we found that to be, we got better data by having someone personally go, you know, and, and, you know, their whole job when I was at ILM, um, our coordinator would talk to us every single day. And that's her whole job. Her whole job was just to go from, from person to person and see where they're at, see what's, if there's anything that's stalling them, so on and so forth. And that's all she did every day was just making sure that we're all meeting our deadlines. She knew where we are in the deadlines and she was passing everything into the data, in, into the data of, of where the project was. And we were just simply meeting with her for 15 or 20 minutes. If you had let us do it, we would have never filled anything out. Like we were just like, you know, and so, so we found it way, you know, I think a lot of firms find it easier to leave the creatives with a, you know, you just budget for a coordinator that's going to, you know, extract that information in a relatively seamless way. Next question. 
Next one comes to us from Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. Please discuss managing a healthy balance between teams spending time inside a software management environment versus holding face-to-face meetings of the principals. Really, I think I just kind of touched on but Anyway, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, exactly, Alex. Um, project management, don't forget, is a team sport. Uh, you have to engage. You have to be somewhat introverted or extroverted, whatever your style is. But the point is, it's all about communication. I think that's why the Agile model is so successful. Daily stand-ups are super meaningful. Um, I've had projects where even we deploy a small um, iOS uh, shortcut where all we do is publish, what did you do today? Are there any blockers? And that gets sent to the project manager. Little things like that make life easy for a team player. Go ahead, Craig. Yeah, so part of it is, you know, what do we need to do the project itself? Then there's the social aspect of having a team that works well together, having some amount of FaceTime uh, or voice time makes a difference when you need to ask someone for, hey, can you show me how to do this thing? If you have that social bond, that, that connection, uh, they're more likely to help each other. Next question. Jason Bache in Albuquerque, New Mexico here on the panel. When I attended business school, 60 was intensely fashionable. Oh, Six Sigma, I'm sorry, was intensely fashionable and in my humble opinion, overused. Where do you think the Six Sigma process doesn't belong? Go ahead, John. And can six, and define Six Sigma, six sigma. Is, yeah. is a uh, quality management tool or uh, approach, which is the idea if you want uh, your quality to be within six standard deviations of perfect uh, probably didn't say that exactly right, but the idea is one in a million things that you send out has a flaw in it. Um, it's really helpful in physically manufacturing goods and services, which is what most business schools are still built on. It's less helpful when you're talking about software. Good, Peter. I think also the discipline of Six Sigma, uh, one of the tools is workflowing, and it ties nicely back to Agile, which is reduced waste in the final product. And so with all these methodologies, you have to sort of pick and choose. And I love Six Sigma for the point of the discipline of decomposing a process or a problem into its essential elements. From there, I, I agree, Jason, with you that it becomes very constraining. And John's point about just get a tool that gets this project done, uh, but leaves behind artifacts so you can learn from. Next question. Plus, it has ninjas. Uh, Brian Schwartz, Baltimore, Maryland. What does the panel think of the IBM rational product line? Go ahead, Peter. Well, I think the challenge is that I, IBM um, and their tooling has been eclipsed by many products. Just look at what's happened in the AI space. GitHub owns this space, period, full stop. Um, unless you have very specific, you're working in um, uh, languages, COBOL comes to mind. Uh, then this stack might be relevant. But I would definitely go for more open source, more modern uh, tooling, personally. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Compare Trello, Asana, Basecamp, Jira, and Microsoft Project, which are on the rise and which are declining or stagnating. Go ahead, Ryan. So Microsoft Project uh, used to be desktop software and, you know, kind of a client-server approach, but they have re uh, released a Microsoft Project online um, tool set. So... Um, you know, among the mix that we've got here, it's probably the most stagnant tool. Uh, Trello is something that's interesting. It was, it was um, you know, acquired by Atlassian. And so when you look at Trello and Jira, uh, there's a relationship between, you know, the publisher of those two projects. Jira is much more software focused. Trello is much more um, broad scenario focused. 
Um, Asana and uh, Trello, and that frankly, even Asana and, and Jira are pretty similar. Asana is probably a little bit less uh, software oriented. And I personally would state that kind of Basecamp is um, the least popular among uh, those that you've um, mentioned here, but I don't have a lot of experience with it. Go ahead, Craig. Yeah, I think Base Basecamp is more of a small team for various projects, not really software oriented. Um, I haven't seen it in use uh, recently. It was big four or five years ago. Uh, and I'd say that out of all of these, uh, you know, Microsoft Project 10 years ago used to be the king of everything. And it's sort of the go-to for a lot of folks that use Office 365 for things. Uh, but I'd say that it's been more fragmented. There's more options now. Uh, so software development, a lot is going into uh, JIRA right now. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When two teams need to merge but are already invested in different project management tools and processes, what are good principles in the strategy of how to unify teams with technical baggage and entrenched practices? This is a pretty tough question. Uh, you usually have to be reduced down to rock, paper, scissors. But, uh, you know, if who's... <laughs> go ahead, Peter. Dueling? Yeah, yeah uh, form, form two teams. Whatever your favorite sport is, go out and play that sport. The team that wins, their tools win. No, I, I say that in jest because this is an, an intractable problem and you have to come back to what is the problem you're solving and then stack the tools objectively up against uh, that problem and your skill set. The biggest challenge is, again, not the tools, it's the capability of your teams inside that match to what the, the solution you're building becomes. Uh, so get a team together, make it small, but also make it creative in a team building style approach. And I have to admit, a lot of times when I'm in this situation, we end up kind of conforming to pushing our data, it depends on how complex the project is pushing our data to a client and the client has whatever they want to use, whether it's Smartsheets or Google Docs or Monday or whatever they have working. But a lot of times internally, we're still using our own software. We're just, we're, we're using our own project management and we're just simply reporting back to theirs because it'd be too hard for us when we have multi-tenancy, lots of different clients. We want to give it to them in the, in the format that they want. Um, the big thing that we do is if there's any uncertainty on their side about what project tools they want to use, we, we throw ours in immediately. Like, how about we use this? And, and we'll invest oftentimes in adding more seats so that they can be part of it so that we don't, we're not, you know, if, if they don't know, we take over quickly um, uh, and not ask them. Um, but if they do know, then we usually try to report into their system. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. Gut reaction. Is good mad project management trainable or are there certain folks that it comes to naturally more than others? Uh, go ahead, John. Yeah, one of the great things about project management, whatever approach you use, is it's just a series of practices and behaviors to achieve a goal on time, in scope and under budget. And anyone can learn those practices. A more analytical person or linear thinking person might have an easier time of learning them, but anyone can figure it out. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Which of these databases is the easiest to use and most versatile? He notes Airtable.com, Asana.com, Confluence, Google Sheets, Notion.so, and what else is there? <laughs> Good, Ryan. So I'll start by comparing Notion and Confluence because those tools are pretty similar and they aren't really databases. They're more wikis, right? 
Uh, Notion has certainly implemented project management tool sets within it, but at its base, it's it's kind of a, a more of a wiki uh, structure. And I would say from a best of breed perspective, it is better than Confluence. The only reason you might want to use Confluence is because you're using Jira and you like the tightness of the integration there. Um, Google Sheets isn't really a database, but we all know that spreadsheets can you know, serve the same purpose that a database can. So I'll kind of set that one off to the side and, and um, Asana to me is much more of a, a project management tool set. So that kind of leaves, uh, you know, Airtable as the one that, you know, pertinent to your question here, Paul, if you're looking for something that's kind of a, a database that's got workflow, uh, my opinion is, is that uh, Airtable is the one that's kind of most, most suitable in your, in your mix. Uh, Peter. Yeah, I think just amend one thing you said, Ryan, just about Notion. Notion is a nice database, um, but it has gaps, especially for project management. There's an add-in to Notion called Nora, N-O-R-A. You can find it on Product Hunt, and it does a nice job of sort of extending the core database of Notion. Again, if the question is about databases, um, uh, Airtable, as Ryan mentioned, is the top, the big, if you come back to the work OS 4 I mentioned, Airtable, ClickUp, Monday, and um, uh, Smart Suite, all are database uh, based and do a nice job. I tend to use Asana uh, for uh, tasks and deliverables more than I use um, anything else. Go ahead, Craig. Yeah, and I'd agree with uh, all the other folks. You know, I think the the one thing I'd be uh, really careful about is when you have something that's super flexible and versatile, you people that work within it may develop something that is really hard to use. And, and so having a little bit more structure to it uh, is sometimes a really helpful thing. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. MPC Major VFX Studio introduced a red-amber-green system where staffers on troubled projects must spend three to five days in studio to help bring a project back on track. Do you think RTO is the magic cure for increasing team cohesion? Go, John. No, it's not a magic cure. And I would also say it'd be really risky to disincentivize people from being honest in a project like that. Because if you're afraid of having to come back into work, you're more inclined to lie about your status, which puts the whole project at risk. Good, Ryan. I will do nothing but second John's second point there. Want to incentivize, uh, you know, having people share that the, the project status is yellow or red is something you want more of, not less of. Yeah. And, and, and the big thing is, is that I don't think that bringing in people into the studio, what, what we have had when we're really in an intense project is we open up in the past, it was Google Hangouts. Uh, now it's Zoom, but we'll just open up a window where everybody, it's a window to some, to everybody else that you can sit there and open talk like we use after hours for. And I don't see any fa any better speed of us being in the same room as us all having a window that we can show everybody something that's actually more efficient to me to do it that way than to have everybody start to come in. And, and again, it especially if someone lives out of area or, or not very close and it's inconvenient as if you look at MPC in London or whatever, you know, suddenly commuting to London in London is is a huge disincentive to wanting to, you know, like, I, I get that it seems punishment, but what you end up with is people fuming all the way in and all the way out and thinking about what other company they could work for. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. I am, am I correct in thinking that project management as a field originated in the U.S. military? Go ahead, Mark. 
Well, I had heard it started in the automobile industry between 1900 and 1950, along with the communications industry. And then William Dennings um, made it uh, probably most, brought it to light most with his quality circles in the rebuilding of Japan after World War II. And then um, later on in the 50s, you had the PERT and the CPM charts. But Peter? You also can't leave out uh, David Gant from 1919 or something like that that started the whole process on the manufacturing uh, side. Freemasons. There was a time when you could not uh, build a building, a castle, and that took logistics and that took project management and that took, you know, and uh, I mean, they were the only ones for hundreds of years that could build these things because they were able to manage a, a very, very complex and highly scaled project. Um, to, to make that happen. So they're they probably the, the innovators of, of that area. But even you could even go back to the Egyptians. And, you know, there had to have been, I don't know what it was, it's probably a bunch of little pictures that are going on there. But we have to understand that somehow people had to track how you're going to build a pyramid you know, and, and how are you going to do those, how are you going to do those things. So I think that project management, we can talk about project management tools the way modern project management tools, I think, are exactly accurate here. But we have to remember that some version of this existed for the last four or 5,000 years. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Up next, if leadership is removing the fear of failure in your followers, how do good project management tools provide that leadership? Good, Ryan. You know, the uh, red, yellow, green status piece that was brought up, there was a, a leader at uh, the Ford Motor Company that did a good job reminding the team that when your um, status of, of, of one of your items is yellow or red the status of you as the owner of that item is not yellow or red so i don't know that that tools can necessarily do this but one thing that i try to avoid is building dashboards that are putting a ton of heat on an individual for maybe being the person that's most willing and able to take on the most complicated elements and uh, something that's much more oriented around uh, helping people swarm those that are uh those items that are complicated and helping people swarm those people that are under kind of uh, the most weight on a, on a particular matter. Go ahead, Peter. I go back to the old adage, a bad strategy is not made uh, correct or better by harder work. And I think it does come back to the silver burrito again, just to promote my favorite food is that this define the problem statement. A lot of times, the, and this sits at the feet of many project managers, they get too buried in Ryan's point around red, green, and yellow status, but what is the business outcome? Are we advancing this project towards that? And that allows you to get the executives to say, oh, there is a mismatch between my perception and the progress of the team. Uh, again, it's teamwork. Yeah, and, and you know, mostly what I do in my, my outside of office hours is I'm kind of a fixer. So when I come in and I look at, I look at a process that isn't working and then I find a way to make it work. And almost everything, and, and then I build logistics around that. And the the thing that I usually find is that that, that folks have gone like this. The goal is over here, and they've gone kind of gone like this, and they're kind of you know just wandering around here trying to find that goal. And usually, I'm not trying to make this go a certain direction. I start back at the beginning. I look at the goal and draw a straight line to it, and then I figure out how to get to there. And I just generally ignore all of this. Um, and whatever, whatever the past was, you know, and so, and that's really hard, but, and sometimes I have to allow the past to continue to, to do its thing while I build the, a more direct route. 
um, to that. But a lot of times I think that you have to constantly be looking at what is the end goal and keep on resetting to it. Because I think what happens is people get into caught up in what are the logistics and what are the intermediate goals as to going back to what are we trying to get to rather than what are we dealing with here? There's a river and everyone's spending time crossing the river. I'm like, well, we might be able to do some other way to get across the river, you know, instead of fording it there, you know? And so, but people can get mired up in the in immediate logistics and you oftentimes have to reset that. And I have to reset it constantly. Like, well, how do I reset that? Because I'll do it too. Like I'll get in, lost in that, in, in dealing with those logistics. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. We talk about troubled projects. Have you ever had cases where you've seen a project that has no hope of getting back on track, but upper management does not recognize that? Good, Craig. Sorry, trying to find the mute button. Um, yeah, I mean, this happens a lot, uh, especially in really large organizations where someone is disconnected, has a mandate, and... Uh, and the team just can't get it done in that time or can't do this thing. And I personally take a lot of comfort in that there is a reality. And me stressing that something has to be done in a month that is impossible to do in two or three months, there's comfort there that, hey, just can't be done. Um, and the other aspect is uh, transparency. And so when everybody sees what's going on, when there's full transparency up and down, Whoever is holding on to a failed notion of uh, time or, or budget or, or some other aspect, it's, it'll be clear to everyone. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When would you recommend a team to grow to a more complex tool versus scaling back the tools to accommodate the team? Good, Ryan. I personally would not worry about whether you're on a tool that's too big or too small. As long as you're on a tool that you feel is reasonably modern, it's cloud-based, it seems like it's going to be around, I would stick with that tool. Good, Peter. Yeah, project management is like practice. And so if you start with an Excel spreadsheet and build a nice dashboard that's pleasing, you can replicate that in higher, uh, uh, more complex platforms and also begin integrating them with Slack or Teams. So you have to, again, design it how you want it, and then we can fit the tool. I would observe just, um, we did prepare an interesting set of products. And if you share the screen real quick, um, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but hopefully in the Discord, we'll share a dashboard there. We sort of created a series of tools and products and then have a series of ratings around what we think is the most important. So it might be a good way for you to look at those tools um, and filter them by different categories. So for example, here is what we talked about earlier about work OS. And you can see the products that we think are relevant in that space. So it's a resource for you. And maybe as a group, we can uh, continue to contribute it as necessary. Last question. Last question comes from Brian Schwartz in Baltimore, Maryland. What tool would you recommend for tracking and prioritize product de prioritizing product defects and new feature requests? Go ahead, Craig. Yeah, so there's a little bit of uh, product management as well as so defects are more of the trouble ticket help desk type of thing. Uh, we use Jira a lot and that's pretty widespread. So I would look at that. Incredible panel.
<laughs> just incredible. Like just amazing, amazing, amazing work. Uh, thank you to everyone who came and, and joined the great presentation and just great Q&A. Uh, and I think that we really covered just an amazing amount of, of uh, project management. This is the beginning, right? This is, we're going to keep on having these conversations, which I think are really important for us to understand. And I just think this team did just an amazing job at putting these together. So thank you. I know that there was a lot of effort and planning to make this happen. And I really appreciate it. Just, just a really, really great. Um, how often do you plan to, do you guys have a plan on a cadence? Is it once a month, once a, once a week? We know office hours has a pretty uh, detailed schedule that goes yeah. out, you know, weeks and months. So we're kind of uh, ready and available with, with more for the series as uh, time allows within the schedule. Yeah, that's great. It's, and we've set up a Discord that. channel so people can ask, you know, could tell us what ideas that they want to hear about in project management. So go ahead over to Discord. Yeah, just, it was, this is like a, a perfect so hour. cool. Yeah, just just to really just have a bunch of experts that set some stuff up over time and then and then just really the people who actually are in this answering those questions really, really effectively. We just really appreciate the effort. Um, coming up uh, this week, we've got a lot of things going on. To, uh, Tuesday, we've got, of course, the show workshop. If, if you want to figure out what it's like to be a panelist or a reader or uh, those, those sites, we basically put together a, a pseudo show. It's at uh, noon Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, so check that out. You'll see it. You'll see links in that in the email that goes out. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about Seagraph, not how we did Seagraph. We already talked about that. We're going to talk about what we saw at Seagraph and what were the cool software and what, are, what were the cool pieces of hardware and what were the trends. So we'll kind of do a wrap-up of Seagraph tomorrow. Wednesday's going to be uh, two hours of, of Q&A for audio. Um, so we had a couple things move there. So, um, so we'll have that there. Uh, Thursday, my brother... My brother's joining us. <laughs> so my brother's going to come on. My brother is a is a A-cam for some pretty big feature films for Steadicam. Um, he has a Trinity rig, um, which uh, if you do some searches for Aerie Trinity, you'll get a sense of what that is. But it's basically a gimbal that sits on top of a Steadicam. Um, and he does some pretty crazy stuff with both the Steadicam and the, and the Trinity. And he's going to talk, talk about it. We're going to show it to you. Got some wireless transmitters and a bunch of other things. So we're going to show you, he's going to walk you through it a little bit and answer your questions. So I think it should be a really fun, um, uh, fun Thursday. Uh, Friday, of course, we have the, well, Friday we have the Zoom update. So the, the, the crew, Andy and Jonathan and Sam, will be here to talk about new features coming out in Zoom. We're really always excited. Those are always great, for, um, great weeks. Um, so this is a really amazing week for us, um, starting off really well with this team and ending well with the Zoom team. Um, and, uh, and then we, you know, we traveled uh, 74,000 miles, 119,000 kilometers. That's 589 million bananas for scale. Thanks again to the panelists. Thanks to the amazing producers. We had a really wide range of people today asking questions. So if you did that and you, this is the first time you've asked those questions, come back again. It was great, great questions uh, coming in from, the, from, our, from our producers. So thank you so much for that. And of course, thank you to the incredible team uh, that we have that is producing all of these in the back end and uh, developing the software um, in, you know, making this all possible. This is not just you know, Zoom, this is like incredible, one of the most complex systems I've ever seen that makes all of this run. And then, of course, um, we have people managing all of these things, the project management uh, that is making sure that there's a show every day. So we really appreciate everybody's contribution. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours.